Thank you. All right, yes, if you would uh, turn to Genesis chapter 38, and once again, a long passage. We're going to take the whole chapter. There's, there's a few of these along the way as, as we go through these generations of Jacob. And I mentioned that this morning because last week when we got started, uh, it was, seemed to be about Joseph. And it was, and Joseph's going to carry a big part of this. However, we remember from chapter 37, verse 2, that this is about the generations of Jacob. And we get these stories. And so we're going to take a, a little shift here. And it's not about Joseph this morning. It's about Judah. Uh, Joseph is, is sold. He's going on his way to Egypt as a servant or a slave. Uh, the father, Jacob, is inconsolable at this point. And that's where we left off. And all of a sudden, now we get uh, this chapter. And so uh, we will read the whole chapter. And for those of you that uh, have an ESV Bible, usually I read out of the ESV. But I'll be honest, I liked some of the phrasing and wording of the NASB, the New American Standard, a little better this week. Uh, so if usually I read word for word and all of a sudden I'm off this week, it's because I'm using a different translation, the New American Standard. But let's read uh, Genesis chapter 38, beginning at verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers, and he visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and named her, her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. 
When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. But she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a kid from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enayim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the palace said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, but it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. The word of the Lord. Well, we uh, have uh, modern technology now that lets us uh, see our genealogy or our heritage. You can get a DNA test and find out your ancestry. And many, many people do it, and some of you have and have told me the stories. And one of the things I hear quite often when people talk about that is uh, that when you do something like that and you find out your family history, you better be ready. <laughs> because you find out things you don't necessarily want to know, but there they are in your family history. And what do you do with it? I remember uh, growing up as, as a child, uh, hearing about my uncle, uh, who was a great guy, by the way, and he married into my family, a wonderful man. If you, if you walked through the door, you would love him. He's friendly and funny and cordial and, and very uh, engaging, um, wonderful, one of life's really good men. But I found out as a child that somewhere in his heritage, he's loosely related somehow to John Wilkes Booth, 
the guy that killed Abraham Lincoln. And you're like, wow, how does that happen? You know, you're such a, a, a nice guy. Uh, and in the Bible, we come across stories once in a while about uh, the, these guys that we call the patriarchs, the, the guys back then. And they're stories that sometimes we don't really want to know. God, why did you write this for us? And, and I mentioned that, that in this genealogy or in these, uh, this heritage of Jacob, we get a bunch of stories. And in this one, Judah doesn't come out smelling like roses necessarily. And so why? What, what, what's the purpose of Genesis 38? And, and there are a few reasons on a literary level. Uh, one of the reasons is it's, it's very strategically placed because it adds some uh, suspense, like an old radio suspense show, you know? We, we have Joseph, who's just been sold into slavery. He's on his way to Egypt, and his father, Jacob, is inconsolable. And, and what's going to happen next? Well, all of a sudden we get this pause we're going to talk about Judah first. So it creates this suspense of what's happening here. Also, it shows that there's a passage of time because we have Judah who gets married and his sons grow up and get married. And, and so we understand all right, some time is going by and, and there is overlap with what's happening with Joseph. And we're going to get to him again very soon. But, but there is some overlap, but time is, is passing here. We also have some themes that are being carried on. Uh, themes like Isaac, uh, who was deceived by Jacob, who was deceived in part by Judah, who's now deceived by Tamar. And all of these deceptions in one way or another involve clothing and goats. <laughs> we just get these themes that keep carrying on. Uh, we get this theme of twins in the womb, and we've, we've seen that uh, before. And there's something else that we're going to notice as we look at this story of Judah and what he's doing. And so let's give it somewhat of a quick look. We're not going to, to dwell on any one part particularly, but we see right away that things are probably not going to go well. We see in verse 2 that we're off to a bad start with Judah here because it says he's married to a Canaanite woman. Now, earlier in Genesis, Abraham insisted that Isaac not marry a Canaanite woman. It's a pagan nation, and, and so he did not want Isaac to marry a Canaanite. That's back in Genesis 24. Isaac and Rebekah, uh, who he had eventually married then, they had uh, twins, Isaac, or, uh, Esau and Jacob. Well, Esau married a Canaanite woman, and, and they hated her. Uh, she was no good. And they insisted that Jacob not marry a Canaanite woman. That's in Genesis 27 and, and 28. And, and you start thinking, well, what's the deal with the Canaanite women here? Why are all these guys being forbidden uh, to marry the Canaanite women? Uh, they're pagans, we know that, but why are they so alluring that this has to be an issue? Well, we kind of get a hint of that in verse 2 as well, when it says that Judah saw and then took. Judah saw and Judah took. And when you see it in the Hebrew especially, this combination uh, has overtones of an illicit taking. In other words, what this suggests 
is that Judah's marriage here is based on mere lust. There's nothing more. He just liked the way she looked, and that's why he took her, and that's why he married her. Notice it doesn't even say her name. It says her father's name. It doesn't even mention her name. It's not important. He didn't care about her name. But he's married to this Canaanite woman. And so this, the first five verses basically set up this marriage uh, to this Canaanite woman, and then they have three sons. Well, we're going to get some more problems now. But also our heroine of the story appears. In verse 6, we get Tamar here. Now, nothing is said about her background, but with her name and, and just a few of the things that we see about her, she's probably Canaanite as well. So an, another Canaanite uh, woman in our story here. But Judah takes her, and she is uh, the wife of his eldest son. So he, he gets her for Ur, the eldest son. But notice this, that Ur in verse 7 is wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so Ur dies. And clearly, the way this is written, Ur was wicked and deserved to die. This is not Tamar's fault in any way, shape, or form. This is his own fault. Well, at that time, as our passage kind of indicates to us, uh, what would happen if, if a woman was married and, and the husband died and there were no children, then a, a, a brother would marry that woman and have children for the brother. It would be the brother, they would be considered the brothers, the deceased brother's uh, children or, or child at least. And so that's what was supposed to happen here. And, and Jacob does uh, that with the next son, Onan, gives him to, uh, to or gives Tamar to him uh, to be a wife. We see that in verses eight and nine. Well, he doesn't fulfill his duty purposefully, and we see in verse 10 that he too is wicked. And so he too dies. Tamar still has no children. And once again, this is his own wickedness. Tamar has nothing to do with this. It's not her fault. However, Judah has a different idea. And there's a couple of strange things going on with Judah. He's got some uh, different behavior here. First of all, um, his sons are wicked. And he seems to overlook that uh, consistently here. Also, you'll notice that he doesn't seem to mourn for his sons. That's never mentioned. When his wife dies, he has to be consoled. When Jacob thought Joseph was dead, he had to be consoled. In fact, he was somewhat inconsolable, but Judah just seems to kind of move on with life. Well, okay, we'll just give her to the, to the next boy. But, but he assumes that somehow Tamar is to blame for the deaths of his sons. So he promises the younger son to Tamar, but with no intention of delivering on that promise. We see that in verse 11. He has really no uh, intention because uh, he's convinced that Tamar is the one that somehow is causing these sons to die. So there we are. There we are with, with Judah and, and the situation with his family. And then we move on after considerable time. You see that in verse 12. After uh, a while has passed now and 
and Judah's wife passes away as well, and, and he's consoled. Well, now we get another chapter to the story, and, and this one uh, doesn't go very well either. You know, there, there are events uh, that you can think of. I'm not going to name them by name, but, but events where when someone says, I'm going to go there, you have this idea, well, that's probably not a great place to go, you know, because things happen there that maybe you don't need to be a part of. And usually it's disguised as some kind of party. Oh, it's just a bunch of people getting together. We're having a party. Well, yeah, but there's other things going on there that maybe aren't on the up and up. Um, and, and believe it or not, sheep shearing had become one of those things. <laughs> when we see that he's going to sheep shearing, uh, one of the commentators uh, says this, uh, and I quote, it was a lively festival when wine was freely consumed. All right, we, we kind of get the idea of what happens or what this sheep shearing has become. And what Judah does at this uh, sheep shearing when he goes to Timnah, uh, it, it's wrong, but it's really not shocking. In, in fact, Tamar, when he learns that he's going there, she sees her opportunity. She knows what, what happens there. So she will use this to her advantage. And, and so she acts. And we see that in verses uh, 12 through 19. After Judah's wife dies and he's comforted, uh, some time passes. Now Sheila, the, the youngest son, is, is old enough to marry Tamar. But, but Tamar in verse 14 clearly sees, okay, this is not going to happen He's, he's grown up, but, but Judah has lied to me. He's, he's not going to give me that. Well, Judah's uh, actions then, as he goes uh, to Timnah, are, are foolish. But if you notice in verses 16 through 18, he kind of treats this uh, transaction uh, with Tamar almost as a business transaction. There, there's really no shame in what he's saying, this is kind of what he does. But, but then uh, when he gives up the, his seal and his cord and his staff uh, until uh, he brings uh, the goat as, as payment, um, he's giving up a lot. This is clearly uh, foolishness. In fact, uh, one commentator uh, put it this way, this would be, uh, have been the uh, kind of ancient Near Eastern equivalent of giving up one's credit cards with this seal. Uh, and it was kind of a two-ring uh, pronged thing, and it would be on a cord. And, and that was kind of your identity. This is almost identity theft, if you want to put it that way. All right, he, he's giving up his identity, and she kind of has free reign with his name now with this seal and, and uh, the cord that it's on and, and the staff. Well, well, more than just extreme foolishness, on Judah's part, um, this behavior uh, would also be punishable by death in that it's his daughter-in-law. Now, he doesn't know that, but that wouldn't matter, really. He doesn't realize just how close to death he is with this behavior and what he's doing. And so Judah is uh, shamed, first of all, uh, we see in verses uh, 20 through 23, uh, 
by the fact that he got duped. Uh, now, now, prostitution, it wasn't illegal, but it was shady. It's, it's not anything you would brag about, but it wasn't necessarily illegal. And you notice that Judah, when he went to pay off to this, what he thought was a temple prostitute, he sent his friend to make the payment. He doesn't want the shame of making the payment himself. He sends somebody else to do it in verse 20. And here's another bizarre thing with Judah. He's not going to honor his pledge to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, but he seems in a hurry to honor this pledge to the prostitute. Things are clearly off in, in Judah's mind here, and part of it probably is that he, she's got his seal and, and staff and the cord, and, and uh, so uh, the friend goes to pay the 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 cost, and he finds out that Judah's been uh, outwitted. And Judah realizes that as well. Whoops, I've been outwitted. But what does he do? He wants to bury the matter. In verse 23, he just wants to bury this whole thing so he won't be laughed at. So we're going to be a laughing stock. Look, she, a prostitute, she fooled me. We, we, let's just bury the matter, all right? It's, it's over. It's done with. Well, if that were the end of the story, that would be shameful enough. However, it gets worse for Judah three months later. In, in verses 26, or 24 through 26, and this is somewhat of the, of the, the denouement, if you will, or, or the, the climax of, of our story here. Uh, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. In verse 24, he wants her killed. Well, let's, let's kill her, and that would be, uh, at the time, an appropriate punishment. That's what he wants. He just uh, comes out with that right away. Well, then Tamar uh, gets a meeting with Judah, presents him with the seal and the cord and the staff, and Judah is faced with the hard truth. In verse 26, he has to say, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And we have all of this behavior of Judah. But in verse 26, we get just a, the, the seed of change. He realizes, my actions have not been righteous. He's married this Canaanite woman out of pure lust. He's taken a Canaanite woman for the son and then blamed her for the son's wickedness, looking over uh, his own family, blaming her for that, lying to his daughter-in-law, not being obedient to God. Her job is to carry on offspring for the sons. He's not going to do that. We're not going to even get into the issue of the prostitution and everything else that comes with that. But there's Judah's behavior. And then in verse 26, she is more righteous than I. So why is this here? Why are we reading this in Scripture? This is not how we want to see Judah, especially when we realize that if you were to look in Matthew or Luke and, and check the genealogy of, of, of Jesus, 
It comes back to Judah. And with Perez, the, the, one of the children here, one of the twins. This, this is Jesus' genealogy, and we have Judah right, right there. But what God wants us to see in verse, uh, or I should say in chapter uh, 38 here, is how Judah is right now. At, at this point, when, when these things are happening, he wants us to see what Judah was. Because Judah changes. And we see the start of that in verse 26. And a little bit later on, in, in a few chapters, and we'll get to it, he is going to give a very noble and unselfish and personally risky, but very necessary plea to Jacob uh, in order to save the, the family. But... God wants us to see how Judah was before he changed. One commentator put it this way, without this account of Tamar putting her father-in-law to shame, we should be hard-pressed to explain the change in his character. And in its biographical sketches, character change is what Genesis is all about. And we've seen that through Genesis how God will take a man or a woman and change them, sometimes even changing the name, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Isaac, and people in Jacob's family now that, that will change. And here is the point of all of that, is God uses changed people. We start out as sinners, but God has to change us. And we need to change to fit God's will. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 12, a very famous verse, 12.2, puts it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because there are lots of Canaanite women, if I can use that term a little derogatorily there. But there are a lot of things out there that will catch our eye. A lot of things we can lust after. And, and a lot of it might not be completely right, but at least it's not illegal. You know, sometimes you do that thing, well, I'm not going to tell grandma what I'm doing, but it's not illegal. So, you know, wink, wink, uh, we'll get away with this. There's a lot of ideas out there that, you know what, I'll take care of my desires and then I'll make my morality fit around what I want to do. I'll, I'll, I'll change the morality to fit what I really want. But like Judah, we don't know just how close to death we can be when we take that attitude. One of the great Puritan writers, Thomas Brooks, he calls it dancing on the edge of the pit. And I like that terminology. You think it's a party, but you're dancing right at the edge of death. And what we need is we need God to change us. It doesn't really matter, like Judah, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. As he grows, it's who he becomes. 
And this is a great reminder for us to daily discern God's will and what God wants us to do because it is so easy and so attractive to conform to the world and and to, to overlook our own sins. But the trouble is sin snowballs as Judah found out. And as I mentioned, later on, Judah is going to say the perfect thing at the perfect time in an attempt to save his family. But it all starts right here in verse 26 when he says, she is more righteous than I. Because we know those times where we have not been righteous. And we need righteousness. And our righteousness comes to us through Christ. And I love how God ties this story into the genealogy of Jesus then, because Christ is our righteousness. And when we go before God, we need to say, God, I need your righteousness. You are far more righteous than I can be. And it is Christ's righteousness that saves us. That is our salvation. And also, it is his righteousness that we strive to achieve. That we can be changed so that we can be most effective for God's will, for God's purpose, and for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you even for this sordid tale of Judah, to see what he was, but to know what he becomes. That he was shamed into saying, she is more righteous than I, because we understand we need your righteousness, Heavenly Father. We thank you for Christ who died on the cross for our sins, that we can be made righteous through him. And we ask that you guide our steps, that you will speak to our hearts, that we will be willing to change before we get shamed, but that we will be changed for your glory. We will be changed to worship you in a whole new way and serve you as best as we can. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And now, if you will, turn to hymn 366. We'll stand and sing the first three verses of I Surrender All.
love that phrase, I surrender all. It's a great way to put it. Our benediction this morning comes from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.